Hello, and welcome to the Vertiguys show. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And I'm very special guest star, Joanna, of What's Lightsaber's Precious. And we're the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we're talking about Sandman. This is the second half of our coverage of A Game of You. Yeah, and welcome back, Joanna. Thanks! Thanks for having me, guys. I'm glad I got to finish off the arc, because, like, I remembered a lot of the first half, and then I remembered, like, the very end of this half, but I don't remember, like, anything that came in between, well, basically. and as this shows us, like, leaving these kind of mental tasks undone can be very Very bad, exactly! Yeah. Um, I learned an important lesson. So, we're starting with part four of A Game of You, which is Sandman number 35, Beginning to See the Light. Listeners, if you somehow missed part one, we'll link to that in the show notes, but you'll want to go back to our last Sandman episode and, and start there for the beginning half of Game of You. You want to see if we can recap it really, really quick? I'll see if I can do it really quick. All right, go for it. It better be damn quick, though. This might not, I'm be, leaving. <laughs> this might not be very good, because if I had written it down, I would be able to just go through it very fast, but I did not. That's right, off the top of your head. So you'll probably do it slow, is what you're saying. Right. Well, okay, so the, uh, if there's this guy Morpheus. No, um... <laughs> Sweet Jesus. Okay, so The Land is an epic fantasy verse that is also part of Morpheus' realm, The Dreaming, and it is also known as The Scary of Dream. And it is host to an epic conflict between the forces of good led by Princess Barbie and the forces of evil led by the Cuckoo. The forces of good need to deliver the Porpentine to a place called the Brightly Shining Sea. Princess Barbie is actually the dream self of a mortal woman who used to dream this story every night, but since a traumatic event she stopped dreaming and the resistance was without their hero. So, a creature named Martin Tenbones went into the mortal world to get her back. He was gunned down by police, but he did manage to deliver the porpentine to her, and when she went to sleep, she found herself back in the land. Now, Barbie lived in an apartment building with a trans woman named Wanda, a lesbian couple named Hazel and Foxglove, a witch named Thessaly, and a creep named George. George turned out to be a servant of the Cuckoo, who, when everybody was asleep sent cuckoos to give them bad dreams to try to force one of them to destroy the porpentine, but he was caught by Thessaly, who killed him, and decided since he worked for the cuckoo, she would kill her too. She summoned down the moon to give her the moon's road to get into the dream world, and went in to get her revenge along with Hazel and Foxglove. Wanda was not able to go because, well, because she's biologically male. Fuck you, the moon. Oh, seriously, I know, I have that, I literally have like those exact, no, I have this stupid transphobic ass moon, I swear <laughs> to God. <laughs> I'm glad that we're putting that right up front, it's, because it, I hate it's that moon. true. Anything else I need to add? I just want to say that that wasn't fast enough for me. <laughs> that was, that I'm was very actually, disappointed. That was actually two and a half hours. Listeners, yeah. <laughs> you're not getting the full... We're editing it down for your benefit. You would not believe. <laughs> but it, it took him a long time. <laughs> okay, so issue four, we open on the land. Did we talk about the credits for this issue? It was written by Neil Gaiman with art by Sean McManus and colors by Daniel Vazo. And the cover is by Dave McKeon. On the top half, we have the side of a taxi, and below, an old man with some kind of swirling demon above or behind him. And he's shouting the word cuckoo, spelled wrong, K-O-O-K-O-O. -O -O. idiot. And it seems like his speech bubble is kind of impaling him through the back of his head. Yeah, that's kind of an interesting effect. It also looks like he has a piece of paper that he's reading from, so I guess he needs like to write that one word down in order to remember it. 
I repeat, what an idiot. So this is obviously a representation of George, who got his face cut off, and then the face was nailed to the wall so it could talk to Thessaly. I reckon you're right. Yeah. Yeah, and then after Thessaly left, it started talking to Wanda. Yeah. Bad face. Okay, so, page one, we're in the land. Barbie and her companions, Luz, Pranado, and Wilkinson are crossing a big scary snowy mountain and it kind of looks like that part from fellowship of the rings okay yeah i'm glad you said that because i i mean obviously i would say this because i was still more of the ring related podcast but yeah i'm getting like a real mount caradras out of this page and then later when they go into the forest she herself evokes murkwood oh yeah that's right yeah she talks about it she does so this is kind of like a real tolkien inspired i don't know if that's just because that is a story that barbie has been exposed to in the past and so her dream ends up sort of resembling that or well i think that if you read in this trade paperback edition if you read all the like forward and afterward and yeah. stuff which i only skimmed so i can't go into detail here but i think neil gaiman does acknowledge Tolkien and C.S. Lewis okay. and a couple of other important influences. Oh, sure, C.S. Lewis for, like, the talking animals and... Things. Right. Okay, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. So they're working their way across this tiny ledge on the edge of the mountain. And when I say they, I mean Barbie, who is outfitted in a princess dress and wearing this luminescent gem. Luz is a parrot in a shirt front. Pranato is a... Organ Grinder's monkey, and Wilkinson is a rat dressed as a reporter. Yeah, and uh, Barbie comments on the fact that she's wearing this party dress, and it's really impractical in the cold. And I I think that's an interesting comment on how the trappings of fantasy are, you know, are impractical for oh, sure. actual adventures. Yeah, she says, I'm cold. I'm so cold. Which reminded me of, it was so very cold that spring. From okay. the Hellblazer issues we did two weeks ago. Oh, yeah. Also, we are told that this is the most risky leg of the journey. Not dangerous, but risky. As in, the whole journey is dangerous, but this is the part where they are most exposed to the forces of the cuckoo. Like, if they're gonna get caught, this is where they're gonna get caught. Right. I like this bit. They say they'll be safer in the forest because there's no love lost between the trees and the cuckoo. And Wilkinson adds... Most of the trees are all right, keep to themselves unless they're bothered, and only an idiot bothers a tree. Again, that's super Tolkien, right? That's like Ents, essentially. Oh, yeah. Also note that Barbie hasn't eaten anything since she arrived, and she feels that. She's hungry, even though this is a dream. Right, it's interesting. They come back to that later on, why she has these sort of bodily sensations, even though she's in a dream. Right, we'll find out more. So, Wilkinson is singing... They tell him to shut up, but he points out that he's singing quietly. Not to be heard, but only to raise their spirits. Right. They see something, and even though it's hard to make out with the snow and the distance, Barbie decides they should check it out. While they're on their way over to whatever she spotted, Barbie asks what the next branch of their journey will be after the forest. Right. They say there's people living there, really down all the way to the sea. She says, what kind of people? And Wilkinson says, just normal people, like me or you or Luz here. <laughs> it's just... So, animals. <laughs> That's really cute. Right. Now, these are former subjects of the Hieromancer, Barbie is told. And she remembers the Hieromancer, this sort of good wizard that used to rule the land, and remembers that she based him on her grandfather. He was a sweet old guy, kind of like my grandfather. What happened to him? Wilkinson says... He's dead. I expect that he's dead. If he's lucky, he's dead. 
Yeah, he goes on to say that after the town is the citadel of the cuckoo, maybe we can avoid it, maybe, but it stands between us and the brightly shining sea. If we get to the sea, there's a causeway that leads to the Isle of Thorns. That's where you've got to get to, with the porpentine, because that's where the hierogram is. Now, if you think there's a connection between the hieromancer and the hierogram, you're probably right. (laughs) (laughs) Nice deductive reasoning. Yeah, and he says, what they do with the porpentine when they get there, they hope Barbie knows, because nobody else does. I thought that's a fun little play on fantasy tropes. Like, we have to get here, and what we do when we get there is, we don't know. The journey is just that way because. (laughs) Oh, dear. So they find the thing which they had seen, and it is the ruined corpse of a bearded guy. This is the Tantaldwin, who was supposed to be bringing them good news. He still has a message clutched in his fist. I don't know that I would necessarily call the message good news, though, because it is basically the encyclopedia explanation of what a cuckoo is. The cuckoo does not build nests. Instead, it places its eggs in the nests of other birds. Indeed, a bird will brood the foster chick whilst her own infant's life slowly dying outside the nest. For when hatched, the young cuckoo during the first few days of its naked, blind, and apparently helpless existence throws out the unhatched eggs, or fellow nestlings. As a rule, the young cuckoo gets the nest to itself. Isn't this what Blofeld was all pissed off about in the latest James Bond movie? Oh my god. (laughs) He was pissed off about it? Yeah. I mean, there's not much you can do, though. It turns out there's a lot. I haven't seen Okay, like, in in all fairness, I have not seen the latest James Bond. I don't know how far his reach in the natural world extends. (laughs) Maybe he did sort it out. fucks everything. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to get revenge on birds. (laughs) I need to see this movie now. (laughs) We've gone from James Bond screws everything to man gets revenge on birds i, I, I mean, like that change james bond screws a lot of people oh, okay, okay, too. okay cool you know if you're gonna stop a guy from getting his terrible revenge on birds you gotta fuck a, <laughs> lot, gotta of fuck a lot of ladies that's just, how you it's do. just literally the only it's, way it's what's done <laughs> it's just the done thing that doesn't make any sense <laughs> does james bond ever make sense not in a couple movies now <laughs> Okay, so Barbie has, like, a long buried memory of how the Tantoblin had helped her and Martin Tenbones in a, in a long-ago segment of this story. He was a member of a group called the Room Patrol, and when the Cuckoo's forces were searching for them, they came along with this room they were carrying and just put it over them. Which is super cute, so basically as long as you're in this room. I mean, it's such, like, good child logic. As long as you're in the room, nothing bad can get you, and they'll just carry you to some nicer place. Right, and it's this combination of child logic and the extreme, like, the really heavy seriousness of the epic story that they're doing now, that this guy whose role in the story was so silly and charming has been brutally murdered. Barbie insists on burying the Tantoblin over Wilkinson's objection, and as they do a funeral here, we get another mention of the god of the land. Murphy's peace be with you. Right, Murphy. I just want to point out, these pages are like really dense with narration and dialogue, and really establish the feel both of a wordy epic fantasy and of a long, arduous journey. Much like the long, arduous journey that one might make through the Kingkiller Chronicle. Oh, I thought you were going to say the long, arduous journey from the beginning of my recap of part one to the end. <laughs> that was... That no, goes past long and arduous. Didn't you mention the Kingkiller Chronicle, like, last time I was here, too? I, I'm still bearing a grudge. <laughs> Yeah, that third book's never coming out. But anyway... <laughs> you heard it here first, people. Yeah, it's never coming out. I have the inside info. It's not. The author is out, you know, building sheds with George R. R. Martin. Like, <laughs> it's never going to happen right now. It is not a thing that again. is going to happen. Never. Sorry. 
So the gang shelters under a snowdrift, and this is where they actually get out the Tantoblum's message and look at it. It includes a bunch of Polaroids of Barbie, although the animals can barely recognize her because in the photos she has her makeup on. And we've seen that Barbie puts on these, like, bizarre masks of her makeup. Right, it's like where full she's, face like, paint. drawing a checkerboard on her face and that kind of thing. Now, I assumed that those Polaroids came from George. Could have. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. I wonder how he got that close up in her face to take them. I know, them. he's, well, no, I was going to say maybe he's taking them while she's asleep. That'd be creepy. Ooh. But she wouldn't have her makeup on. Not usually, no, unless she came home really drunk. She's <laughs> <laughs> passed out, but. <laughs> that wand is a bad idea. Yeah, terrible. Yeah, so, so Barbie explains, so originally I was going to get a tattoo, but I don't want anything permanent anymore. It's like I could be a different person every day. Insight into her psychology there, I think. That's another call out to the themes of identity and impermanence yep. as Barbie chooses to be a different person every day. And we see, too, that she's still kind of adjusting to who she is without her ex-husband, Ken, still hesitant to commit to a new permanent identity. And this is where we get the encyclopedia entry on the cuckoo. And as they're reading it, a band of soldiers in black armor approaches and just as Barbie is getting to the part where she describes the almost hypnotic power of the young cuckoo's voice, Luz shushes her and says that danger is nearby. These are the cuckoo's black guard, and they are creepy looking. They're too tall and thin with their long pointy helmets and spikes coming out everywhere. Glittering red eyes. You really can't see anything human underneath that armor. They're wearing hats like those guys in Lost Odyssey. Okay... That's a you deep cut. You don't remember those really tall hats from Lost Odyssey? I don't. Was this like party equipment or bad guy? No, gear? it was just like in in the cutscenes. Both the good like good guy soldiers and the bad guy soldiers all. Well, I guess the bad guy is a wizard, but even like people on different sides of the same war, they had different tall hats. But they all had tall hats. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't seem like that's enough of a distinguishing feature. Is this a movie? So Lost Odyssey was an Xbox 360 game, but it was by the guy... Hironobu Sakaguchi. Yeah, it was the first game that the guy who made the Final Fantasy games made after he left Square Enix. So it's basically a Final Fantasy game. Okay, so we're talking like an RPG style and it's like 60 plus hours or whatever. Yeah. I just want to point out, these guys are lucky they don't work for Supreme Leader Snoke. He will not let you wear an impractical black helmet. Never. Nope, Never. (laughs) Also, I want to point out, like, I mean, like, I don't think I have to, but, like, what this first panel sort of looks like. Hiding under a sort of a hollowed-out hill as something walks past you. No? Where are you going with this? Fellowship of the Ring, Jesus Christ. Oh, all right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought that might be where you were going. And yet you let me just, like, <laughs> die out here. You didn't think... throw me a freaking bone I couldn't at remember. All. Well, because I couldn't remember who's actually doing it in that scene. Oh, it's like the hobbits are hiding. I just remember that hollow. it happens. And I then, don't the, remember. then the Nazgul comes out. I actually went in that hollow when I was in New Zealand, except the tree root that was over it is fake. So it's like this slight indentation in the picture just looks like I'm squatting down to take a poop in the woods. <laughs> Which, if it gets scary enough... I would, I would, exactly. I thought you were going to, like, a watership down place where there were rabbits or something, because there's this snowdrift big enough for several adult people to shelter under it. It could be watership down, too. So there's a whole page devoted to this breath-holding moment as they're all trying to be silent and as the black guard marches by. It's actually pretty effective. And when they're gone, the party continues on their journey. 
Barbie looks back at the message from Tantoblin, and the photos have become playing cards, and the scroll is now illegible. Which is, like, such a thing that happens in dreams. If you're trying to read something in dreams or type something in dreams, it's, like, the most frustrating experience ever, because it's constantly shifting. This is true. She also points out that, like, they spend the night in that little shelter, but she doesn't remember dreaming. But it's not exactly true that you can't dream in a dream. Specifically, that guy from the first issue, he got the eternal waking. Yeah, Alex Burgess was cursed with waking up from one nightmare only to be in another forever. Right. Speaking of dreaming, we find ourselves at Morpheus's palace in the dreaming. Right, and he is talking to Lucian. The librarian. Lucian has found something of interest. Apparently there is an ancient, almost forgotten compact involving this particular scary, which is to say, the land. Right, so Morpheus basically concludes with, all right, we'll have to see how things fall. Keeping an eye on the situation, not acting quite yet. That's our Morpheus. (laughs) That's our Morpheus, and extremely passive. Yeah, and this is the first time we kind of get a hint about what this compact he entered into was all about. It becomes somewhat more clear by the end of the story, but at least as of the end of A Game of You, it doesn't become fully clear. We never are really told what he got out of it. But we basically understand that the land is collapsing and Morpheus has known that and he didn't think he had to do anything about it and he realizes because of the compact he does. Like, God dang it, you mean I actually have to do something? (laughs) (laughs) So lazy son of a bitch. It really is. So Morpheus is then approached by Nuala, who's the gift from the fairies. From Season of Mists. Yeah, and I love that Nuala spends her first three panels explaining who she is in case we have forgotten. She, well, yeah, she's just this, this mousy little thing, so maybe she's assuming nobody would take much notice of her, but she lets Morpheus know, even though she was supposed to just watch Barbie and see what happens, she did actually take it upon herself to try to warn Barbie that something bad was coming. Morpheus sent her out to do nothing for him. Yes, <laughs> he, now he's outsourcing his inaction. Like, he can't even be inactive himself. <laughs> that is so... You mentioned that she's a mousy little thing. That reminds me, that was one of the kind of shitty parts of Season of Mists. Or, I think we talked about this at the time, and I thought it was kind of shitty, and you didn't think Well, she was super so. bombshell gorgeous when we met her the first time. Right. Right. Because it was when a glamour, was, right? Right. And then when she was given to Morpheus, like, the fairies, like, took her beauty away. Or, and just made her this kind of, like, unassuming I thought figure, it was a thing that Morpheus of, said, crap. like, glamour wasn't, glamours weren't allowed? Yeah, Morpheus Did, doesn't like that? petty enchantments in his land. Oh, okay, that's what, well, yeah, in any case, like, it, I don't know. It just seemed like, it just seemed like a, kind of a fuck you to, to her character for no reason. She just has to use her normal, her normal old mousy face now. <laughs> so she tells Morpheus that she gave Barbie a warning, and he says... I see. Thank you for telling me, Nuala. That will be all. And then there's a great bit of physical comedy here. As he walks away down this long corridor and then turns and comes back. (laughs) Yeah, and he says, Nuala, you did the right thing. I love that. That's like so warm and fuzzy for him. And (laughs) And then as he walks away, she breaks into a big smile. Yeah. Yeah, so we get a whole page devoted to this kind of nice moment. This kind of nice moment. Mormon. Uh, this uh, nice Mormon. This nice, nice Mormon, Mormon man. This nice Jorah Mormon. Yeah. <laughs> That's why he's named Morpheus. It's, a, ni- it's a good Mormon name. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but of, of him learning to be like a little bit less of a douche. 
or at least a little bit less disconnected from people. Presumably he always had some glimmer of niceness on the inside. Now it just seems like he's making more of a concerted effort, which I appreciate. Yeah. Cut back to Barbie, who awakes on the borders of the forest, warm for the first time in a long time. Right. And so she learns that her friends, well, Wilkinson is there when she wakes up, but her friends have gone off to gather breakfast for her. So Pernado's up trees looking for eggs. Luz is trying to barter for some fire for them to cook their food. Yeah, I liked that line. He's bartering with the need rig for fire. It's like, how do you barter for, well, what any? Anyway. <laughs> it's, yeah, it just suggests it's so, just imagination to spare. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So Barbie and Wilkinson gather up some fruit and mushrooms for breakfast. Wilkinson, look at how many he has in his coat. He looks like he's got about a billion of them. Yeah, as they're doing this, she asks about the hierogram, and he says he doesn't know anything. Martin Tenbones was the one who knew. Ten Bones was basically running this show, if we're being honest. Right. Yeah, and so as they're kind of talking about what the rest of their journey has in store for them, Wilkinson just keeps, like, dropping, like, great old adages. Yeah, I love this part where Barbie says, I wish I knew what I was going to have to do, and Wilkinson says... Wish in one hand, shit in the other. See which one fills up first. Old Wilkinson family saying... Do you guys think that that's like an actual old saying in England? Or do you think Neil Gaiman just like made it up? Oh, which in one hand, that's absolutely a saying. Oh, you've heard it before? Yeah, I've never heard it before. My, that I, was so funny. I think both of my parents independently really? uh, use that phrase. Oh, yeah. man. My parents would never use a phrase that had shit in it. Well, your family's crazy. They they used a different word. Poop. Pissing or spitting, depending okay. on, yeah, 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 on yeah, how, yeah. how okay, vulgar you sense. want not only, Yeah, not only a different word, they were invoking an entirely different, different bodily, bodily function. function. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, but that was he, good about He also says, he describes the guards in the black armor as uh, black as midnight's arsehole. Oh my god, <laughs> I lost it at that. I thought that was the best. And another part, he says, we'll just have to burn that bridge when we come to it. Yeah. So, yeah, he's uh, he's such an old character, this Wilkinson. So they have a fantastic breakfast. Barbie says one of the best meals she's ever eaten, and she's surprised that she could taste in her dreams. Right, so then Luz tells her, this isn't a dream. But yeah, the animals start arguing here about whether it's a dream. Wilkinson says, well, yes, it is a dream, but not in the way she means. So it's real to them, but they also know, I guess, that they're in the dreaming? Yeah. Before you came, before the cuckoo, the land was here. Barbie says, huh? But it's my dream. No, you come here to dream, but the land is older than you, princess. Barbie says, how? How do you know? Well, just look around you. Did you create all this? I don't know, didn't I? No, of course you didn't. You're just the princess. So now we don't even really know, like, whose dream this originally was. It is interesting, like, even the term princess itself kind of implies... Like, a person who is born into a position of importance in a hierarchy that predates them. Yeah, that's a good point. That is a good point. That is a good point. It implies continuity. Right. Barbie says that she's delighted to be here, happier than she ever remembers being. And then we get some grumbling from Wilkinson. I loved being a kid. I was one of 17 children. We were all named Wilkinson. I suppose it was roughest on the girls, but we all got used to it in the end. I blame the parents, really. Lovely people. It was just, when they found a name they liked, they stuck with it. So Barbie says that, uh, I, my childhood was fine, I suppose. I mean, my mom and pop were nice people. Good people. It just wasn't very exciting. 
Uh, so Luz interjects to let them know that they are being watched. Right. In fact, they've been watched since they have entered the forest. However, Wilkinson points out that if it was the Cuckoo's people, they'd have robbed us by now. So not entirely sure who it is that's watching them. Yeah, so they just ignore it and keep going, even though they're feeling watched all the time. Barbie seems to be enjoying the trip anyway. But we were warm. We had just about enough to eat. Sometimes that's all that's important. After a while, I simply accepted that we were being followed and observed, just as I got used to a diet of apples and nuts and drinking from small streams and brooks and using moss for toilet paper. I felt like Bilbo and Mirkwood, in that bit where the giant spiders get them. And so she asks, Wilkinson, are there... are there giant spiders around here? Giant spiders? Around here? Of course not. Sorry, silly of me. Nah, the giant spiders is all in a little forest to the west of here. They are good people. They are loyal to you, not to the cuckoo. But they are few in number and timid beasts. I thought that was funny. I, I, that like, I, don't know, I thought that was really charming. Right, and as we said before, Gaiman's showing his homework a little bit. A little bit, yeah. So they travel for days, the forest getting darker and darker. Pernato, that's the monkey, is leading them since he can climb up into the trees to scout ahead. Then one day he's scouting ahead and he doesn't come back. Barbie comes up with the idea that because they're heading towards the sea... They should follow a stream instead, which will lead them towards the sea. And if they were in the real world, I'd say she was right. You think it's possible that her fantasy geography does not conform to real world standards? Yeah, and therefore the plan the won't work? Yeah, it could be the case. I mean, yeah, that's not what happens. It seems like it goes just fine, but... I mean, it's a better idea than I would have had, but who knows if no, it's yeah, valid here. Me, probably me too. And as Wilkinson points out, this is a bright idea. She's contributing to the quest. And she asks, Do you... do you think Pernado's all right? No. Wilkinson, never the optimist. So they are sleeping one day, or one night. They're not sleeping during the day. They have a quest. They can't be lazy like that. Right. But they're sleeping one night, and Barbie wakes up to find Pernado hanging before them. And it looks as though he's being clutched by some kind of willowy hand a bony yeah bony hand i couldn't quite tell but that's what it looked like to me too yeah and barbie wakes everybody up before realizing that pranato is dead these long-fingered folk i guess turn out to be the tweeners who serve only themselves neither the forces of good nor the cuckoo right and they were mentioned on page one yes uh, Although I misread it as tweens on page one. Watch out for which tweens. Which is valid they, because they also, I also serve. They also serve only themselves. <laughs> I also go out of my way to avoid tweens, so I completely understand that is valid. I think this is a wise philosophy. <laughs> See, I have to tell this story. When they created the Bothans for Return of the Jedi, they didn't know much about them, but they did know that they are neutral in the war. They serve both the Empire and the Rebellion, hence the name... Bothans. Is that true? True story. Wow. Yeah, there's one thing I've learned about Star Wars names is that, like, a lot of times they just either phone it in or go for something extremely obvious. <laughs> My favorite being they renamed Brainiac Pons Limbic. It's like, yeah, just like two two parts of the brain just stick them together. Wait, Whatever. what the fuck? 
fuck? Yeah, who, that's a thing. Who's, who's Brainiac? He's like this guy who appears in the background and he has like an exposed brain. In, Some mask they found in Star Prince Wars. Character? No, not the Jedi Prince. He's actually in the movie. Which um, scene is he in the background You of? would have to ask Ryan. I wish <laughs> I knew. But we found his toy at Toys R Us and I was like, Pond's limping. This is the <laughs> stupidest thing. <laughs> and he was right next to this guy called um, Commander Gree, who was green. So I'm pretty sure they just took the N off green. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, that's like, I learned this from your podcast. Oh. But it's like how Ewoks are just Wookiees. Like, like backwards. Instead of, instead instead of, of Wookiee, Wookie, it's Ewok. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, George Lucas Fucking could shit, not man. be arsed sometimes. Like, he just did not care. Anyway, back to the matter. He shows again. his homework, too. Oh, yeah. Well, By just not, <laughs> like not concealing his yeah. thought process even a little bit. You gotta respect it. It's kind of a power move. Like, this is how little of a shit I gave on this particular aspect. What are you gonna say about it? Right, like, no, like, my name is Lucas. My main character's name is Luke. What the fuck are you gonna do (laughs) (laughs) Alright, returning to the task. Okay, so tweeners are fucking scary. Yeah, they are. They talk in, like, Curl's MS font, and so it gives them this kind of darkly mischievous, potentially murderous flair. Yeah, we never see a whole tweener, just like this creepy hand and these voices coming from off panel. Cannot escape tweeners. These are tweener woods. Even though you cannot escape tweeners, Wilkinson orders everybody to run. And running works. Except for Barbie, who trips over a root. Now, as she sprawls, the porpentine starts glowing, indicating that they found one of Murphy's paths. I thought they were all lost, but the porpentine remembers... Yeah, and so they have to follow the light of the porpentine to stay on the path. Now, a little review. The porpentine is the gem necklace that Barbie is wearing, and it kind of resembles a dreamstone. Yeah, and she's wearing it both in the real world and in the dream. Right. We haven't actually gotten to the real world yet this issue. Although... Well, we got one more page to go before we get there. In the morning, they continue on this barely visible ancient road. Follow the yellow brick road kept running through my head, but the stones were not bricks, and they were dirty gray. Again, more of fantasy influences that perhaps Neil Gaiman turned to in creating this story. Yeah, and Barbie knows all of the influences. Yeah. She's conversant in the genre. All right, so they have reached the sea... But in order to get to the Isle of Thorns, they have to get Barbie through the town that's there somehow. Okay, so they're at the sea, but they don't just need to get to the sea. They need specifically to get to the causeway that leads to the Isle of Thorns. Exactly. So Luz offers to go down to the town and fetch help. Wilkinson tells Luz that it will be dangerous, but Luz insists that she will go and seek the resistance, and that she will be all right. And for the first time this issue, we cut back to New York. Now, Barbie has been traveling for weeks in the dream, but it's the same night here. Right, and right where we left her, Wanda is having to take more transphobic shit off of people. This well, time... people is kind of a stretch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, maybe it was a person at one point. Um, This time, yeah, it's from... Well, the moon, and then also a detached face that is nailed to a wall. That being George. So we can George. call those people that being George. George, at this point, I think, is really just trying to have something to talk about. Kind of bored. Right. 
But I like the position that Wanda takes in this conversation. Okay, sure. So I am not a man. Maybe not to you you're not. But you've got the, uh, you know, male nasty thing. Listen, I've had electrolysis. I'm taking hormones. All that's left is just a little lump of flesh. But all that doesn't matter. Inside, I'm a woman. She doesn't think so. And to be honest, uh, well, even if you had, uh, the operation, it wouldn't make much difference to the, uh, moon. It's chromosomes as much as anything. So now the moon is a geneticist. Good for the moon. (laughs) It's like, uh, gender isn't something you can pick and choose, uh, far as gods are concerned. Well, that's something the gods can take and stuff up their sacred recta. I know what I am. Yeah! Yeah! That was a fist pump moment. Good! You tell him, Wanda! Also, this is a little off topic, but does Wanda have breasts in this chapter? And did she not have breasts before? I feel like when she was being drawn by Colleen Doran, she had a very masculine Like pecs more so than breasts. Right. But we're back with Sean McManus now. Right. um, Who drew the first two issues, but not the third issue of this story arc. And he doesn't, like, emphasize the, the masculine so much. Right, 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 right. Before we move on, I do want to point out George's attempt to entice Wanda into conversation. I know uh, lots of things. When you're uh, dead, there's stuff I don't bother keeping secret anymore. So Wanda asks why George is talking when Thessaly commanded him to shut up, and he points out that Thessaly's commands only hold as long as Thessaly is actually there, which she isn't anymore. Now, Thessaly had cast a spell on all the women in the apartment that they couldn't will themselves to walk out. But with Thessaly's commands vanished, Wanda could actually leave. But she decides that she'd better not. She has to look after Barbie, after all. I can't leave her. She's my only friend. She doesn't treat me like a freak or a weirdzo or anything. Just a friend. If you want to know what the weirdzos are, you really should go back to the first episode. Yeah, I think that's fair. George also points out that what... Thessaly did with the moon is going to have important consequences in the real world. It wasn't just a spiritual thing, it was a physical thing. The moon was physically in the room, apparently. Right. I, uh, hate to think what she did to the, uh, tides and the, uh, weather. She shouldn't mess with the moon. That's dangerous. Back in the land, Wilkinson is holding forth on how they are clearly being protected by some kind of divine provenance. Despite the deaths, he says things are going really well. They found the forest path, and the black guard missed them in the snow. He even thinks when they get to the Isle of Thorns, there will be some convenient explanation what to do with the hierogram. And then Luz returns. Did you bring back any friends? And Luz says, yes, lots of them. Yeah, and we can see feet in black armor right behind Luz as she says this. Yes, she is flanked by a unit of the black guard. My note says... Lose is a piece of shit. I wrote, lose, why? (laughs) (laughs) Wilkinson tells Barbie to run, and he tries to hold off the black guard, but they just instantly slash his throat with a spear. Oh, it's so sad. Wilkinson is dead. He was a fave. And he dies, like, extremely gorily here. Yeah, yeah. Even though he's a cute animal, the story is not sparing on the violence. No, they all but decapitate him. It is a very, very deep neck slash. Under Luz's command, the Black Guard take Barbie captive, one of them walking on each side of her so that she can't throw herself off the cliff. And leaving Wilkinson's body behind in the foreground, they march toward the brightly shining sea. I wrote, never trust a bird. (laughs) (laughs) 
So you share a motive with with Wolf the James Elf. Bond guy. <laughs> He too yeah. does not trust a brother. I, I guess I am prepared to join Spectre because I do not <laughs> That's all you need trust for birds. <laughs> and this is where shit starts to get really weird. They arrive at the Citadel of the Cuckoo. So, yeah. So Barbie says, but this isn't a Citadel. I know this place. This was our old house in Florida. This was where I grew up. Go in, Barbie. She's waiting for you. And then they took off the manacles, and I went in. Whoa! Whoa! Fucking, that, what an issue. That issue took place almost entirely in the land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, except for the two-page break in New York. Right. Well, and a little bit took place in the dreaming. Yeah, it was one scene in the dreaming. But, yeah, it was a lot of high fantasy adventure. Yeah, and really helped to get us invested in this story, which, to this point, had been of interest mostly for its influence on the real-world events. Right. So that brings us to Sandman issue 36. Five, Over the Sea to Sky. The credits on this one are the same as before, but additional art is credited to Brian Talbot and Stan Walk. I don't know if there's any way of telling which bits they drew, but... I think that some of them are fairly clear. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Obviously, we're jumping ahead, but this part here where Wanda is going out in the storm to save Maisie does not look like Sean McManus pencils to me. Okay, you might have a better sense of that than me. Also, this part at the beginning, the scene where Barbie confronts the cuckoo. Yeah. So the title of this story is Over the Sea to Sky. That's a reference to the Sky Boat Song, a folk song about the Jacobite Rebellion in Scotland, now recognizable to many as the opening theme to the show Outlander. Oh, all right. I didn't know, I didn't that. know that. Thanks for dropping that knowledge on us. I didn't know that about the show Outlander, but I, I, I know that song. Yeah, yeah. From being Scottish. <laughs> The cover is by Dave McKeon. On the top half, city lights reflecting off of water, is my guess? Yeah, and on the bottom half, we've got a vampire and some brides. <laughs> so specifically, the image becomes clearer. It's a little easier to understand when you've read the issue. This giant face with a dark cloak is sort of holding the cloak open as these brides rush into it. Well, I guess we'll uh, we'll get to that. Right. So we open in the land, or specifically the part of the land which is Barbie's childhood home. She walks in, she sees her her father's old third prize bass fishing tournament trophy up on the wall, remembers how proud he was of it. She sees all this very tacky old furniture. (laughs) I noticed that too. (laughs) Extremely tacky. It kind of looks like Rocco's shirt on Rocco's Modern Life. (laughs) Oh my god! (laughs) So if you like want to get an image in your head of that... Yeah, and then she, you know, they've got the sliding glass doors that look out to the ocean. So she's sort of reminiscing about her childhood. There's some really fantastic description from Barbie on this page. I love, Papa was so proud of this little fish. It was the only thing he ever won a prize for. As well as, it's just like I remember it, only smaller. Isn't that always the way when you go back to places that you frequented as a child? And she looks out the sliding glass door onto the brightly shining sea. And the brightly shining sea isn't any brightly shining sea. It's the Atlantic Ocean early in the morning, after the sun's burned the clouds away and before it's risen too high in the sky, at the moment when the sunlight turns the sea to silver. Dappled, glinting, magical silver. As if the light wasn't reflected, rather as if the sea shone with its own wonderful light, glittering and sparkling like liquid diamonds. When I was a little girl, I used to run down the sand and into the sea, and i tried try to pick up the shining silver water. i cut my hands and catch it, but it always turned back into dirty gray-green seawater. And then... 
the most hideous child in the world walks into the room and says, Well, that's what makes that the brightly shining sea. It stays liquid diamonds when you pick it up. And it doesn't taste salty either. It tastes kind of like grape juice. Yeah! What the fuck, ugly kid? <laughs> she is like, I mean, this is, I think, maybe the second ugliest one. Anytime when they show her teeth and gums, it's like her teeth are just too delineated. But well, she I, has a missing tooth she because a missing she's tooth. a little kid. Yes. Right. So this is the cuckoo, and this is obviously Barbie as a little girl. I did notice that the little girl is, like, outrageously ugly at the beginning of the, the comic, and then she's less so at the end. So. Right. I think that the parts where she's cuter, she's being drawn by... Sean McManus. Makes sense. And I think these couple pages here where she's drawn in a very kind of realistic style. Yes. That, that I also found kind of ugly. Oh my god. I think that might be one of the one of the fill-in artists. The cuckoo explains that she wasn't reading Barbie's mind, she just figured out what she was thinking. It wasn't that hard. And she proves that she's the spitting image of Barbie by recounting a story where Barbie got a scar on her knee after jumping off the roof while trying to fly. I'd been lying so hard I convinced myself I was telling them the truth. I jumped off the roof, needed two stitches. Yes, I remember. As the cuckoo holds up her scarred knee. Yeah, and if you thought this kid was ugly before, <laughs> wait until she starts fucking showing wounds and like... <laughs> She needed to be grosser. I think I wrote something. Where is it? How did she have more lines in her face as a child than she does now? <laughs> it's not like a rule in art where, like, the more lines you draw, like, it ages you, right? Like, this kid has too many lines in her face. I'm surprised by this reaction. I mean, she's obviously supposed to be very cute. In fact, she describes herself as very cute. She does. She does. But she's also drawn with she a lot of detail. She makes people think she's cute by fucking hypnosis. <laughs> I think so. She's also just, her jaw is like very sharp for a child. And like every time she opens her mouth, her gums are showing, which can be charming on the right little kid, but is not on this one so much. I guess it's that she's like a more realistic drawing of a child than most of the characters were of adults. That might could be it. They're kind of prettified and she's really not. Maybe it's at the point where it's a little bit uncanny valley for me. I'm not sure. I think that's what it is. Now, Barbie says, you're me, and the cuckoo denies being Barbie. She says she's an aspect of Barbie or something that Barbie created. Remember what the encyclopedia said about where cuckoos come from. Exactly. So Barbie says, but you, you made them kill Wilkinson. You were the one who did all those things. It's because of you Martin Tenbones is dead. Go ahead. You want to do the little girl voice? I don't know how much of a little girl voice to attempt. <laughs> Because of us, Princess Barbara, because of us. Like I said, I'm almost you. Barbie angrily asks if this is where she's going to find out that she was abused as a child or something, that all the trouble in the land stems from buried trauma. Nope, the cuckoo says. You weren't abused as a child, Barbara. Your childhood was dull, quiet, and boring. You had two dull parents and a dull house, and an overactive imagination. I'm pretty glad that Gaiman didn't go there for the source of the problems in the land. Oh yeah, thank God. Yeah, sometimes it seems like people do that when they don't know what else to do, and it's a little bit... I mean, it can be done well, but it's a little bit exhausting sometimes, so... And I wondered if that's one of the points where it differentiates itself from 
The Jonathan Carroll one. Oh, right. The one where she had to have... See, I'm not actually sure there might be some abuse in that novel. All I know is that, like, a lot of it revolves around an abortion. So. You mean you didn't read the novel in between no. last <laughs> No! That was... We were counting on you to you do You lent me that book about H.H. H. Holmes to read. I was reading that. Oh, well, right. <laughs> so we're a little clueless about the plot of the Jonathan Carroll novel, the title of which was... Bones of the Moon. Uh, but it definitely seemed like that book was relating real-world trauma to dreamlike imagery. Right, exactly. Whereas this one, not so heavy on the trauma part. Although if she wasn't traumatized before, she's certainly going to be after this experience. Is <laughs> <laughs> that All right. The, the cuckoo explains that when Barbie was a child, her imagination was so overactive that it frightened her parents because she was interested in... Things like witches and ghosts and things that just weren't true scared them. And then she begins to talk about the differences in the way that boys and girls dream. Yeah, so we get some more gender essentialism here. A <laughs> little bit, little bit. Yeah, it's hard to know how much of that is actually coming from the writer and how much of it is just the, I don't know, the cuckoo's own particular view on things. But basically, the thrust of it is the idea that boys imagine fantasies where the world is kind of the same and they become a different person, a more powerful version of themselves. Right, themselves, but stronger, smarter, better in some way. And she explicitly invokes Superman here. Well, yeah, she calls Spider-Man and Superman Spider and Hyperman. But we don't know what she means. For copyright purposes, I suppose. But girls, on the other hand, kind of imagine a world where they are cuckoos. Now, little girls, on the other hand, have different fantasies, much less convoluted. Their parents are not their parents. Their lives are not their lives. They are princesses, lost princesses from distant lands. And one day the king and queen, their real parents, will take them back to their land, and then they'll be happy forever and ever. Little cuckoos. She then takes Barbie into her old bedroom, and I want to point out, first of all, that this horse in this poster is giving a real come-hither look. <laughs> <laughs> that is an eye for detail. Yeah, just, it's like the first thing that jumped out at me. I was like, Jesus. Yeah, eyes are kind of half-lidded. It's kind of looking at you out of the corner of your eye. Like Her wallpaper is all these, like, awful hearts, too. It's a loud room. I mean, it's a little girl's room, I guess. But, yeah, I mean, just the decor of this Florida house in general is really loud, so I guess it fits. And the cuckoo introduces Barbie to the toys, which were the inspiration for all of her companions in the land. A little cat thing, a little rat, a little parrot, a little monkey, and for Barbie, a Barbie. Which is wearing a dress very, very similar to the dress that Barbie is wearing now. This is, like, my least favorite picture of this little girl, by the way. The panel where she's pointing at the stuffed animals. Oh, yeah. It's heinous. Wow. It's an absolute crime against nature. <laughs> what, a, what an awful old man that is. Yeah, right. <laughs> is this real, or is it just my imagination, Barbie says. If you tell me what the difference is, I might be able to tell you. And at this point, Barbie starts getting weaker. It's like she's dying just from being around the cuckoo. Yeah, or like these events are so shocking that they're really taking it out of her. She staggers into the kitchen seeking a glass of water as the cuckoo follows, bragging. It's a little like possession, only I didn't bother with your body. I moved into your dream world, into those parts of your life you weren't using. You were everything I needed. I'm your imaginary fiend. So the cuckoo's really just showing her hands at this point, presumably because she's, she's confident that Barbie is starting to fall under her spell. The cuckoo asks Barbie if she likes her, if the cuckoo has a right to live, if she's cute. 
And Barbie answers yes, of course, to all those questions, even though she is absolutely wrong in that last question. It is not cute. <laughs> You're cute as a button. Looking real sick in that panel. Really sick. So that bit about the hypnotic voice turned out to be true. Yes, it did. The cuckoo asks if Barbie wouldn't mind if the cuckoo had to kill her to completely destroy her. And Barbie agrees. Cuckoo says, oh, good, and gives Barbie a little kiss on the forehead, then goes out to address her troops. Everything's fine. It was easy. I want her taken down to the Isle of Thorns. We start at moonrise. Meanwhile, in New York City, there's a big storm blowing hard. We're listening to a late-night radio DJ. Apparently, they just played They Might Be Giants' Nightgown of the Sullen Moon. Which I, I remember that song. Thematically fitting, too. Right. And which is it named for a 1983 children's book by Nancy Willard. Oh, good research. I did not know that. I mean, maybe he just knew that. Maybe he did. That would be extra spooky. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did want to point out while we were in Barbie's room also that we see her shelf of books here. And we can see Narnia and Tolkien and the witches... And C.S. Lewis. What's that middle one? This? The Magician's Nephew. Which the is Magician's a Nephew. Book. Got it. Got it. One of those books just says witches on it. I assumed that was Roald Dolls of the Witches, but it could just be like a reference. Right. <laughs> just like a book on witches. <laughs> witches. Their life and time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this radio program on uh, WRAT, uh, somebody calls in to let the DJ Barbara, what is it, Barbara Wong? Yeah, Barbara Wong. Barbara Wong know that the hurricane that has just passed them by, Hurricane Lisa, is going to turn around and head back their way. But Barbara Wong dismisses that, saying that if that was the case, they would have heard about it from the weather service already. This is a neat little joke, just making the dialogue like more colorful than it needs to be to serve the purpose of this page. As she asks his name and he says, Jim, Jim Morrison, not the famous one. She says, hey, wouldn't it be a coup for my show if you were? <laughs> Yeah, Jim Morrison was long dead by this point, in addition to being very famous. Yes. So now we cut to a place we haven't seen before. This is the Moon's Road that Thessaly, Hazel, and Foxglove are using to walk to the Dreaming. Right. It's kind of a neat panel. They're all basically washed out by the moonlight, but you get like these glimpses of colors sort of around their edges. And as they're walking, they're starting to sort of lose track of their identity, going back to that identity theme we've got here. Right. All three identities are blurring together. There's one narrating voice which states identities that belong to all three. In the pale light of the moon, I play the game of you, whoever I am, whoever you are. And we've seen something like this before. Remember in Dream of a Thousand Cats when the cat was trying to walk to the Dreaming? It also passed through a darkness so intense that it lost all sense of itself, all memory of why it was coming. And we should also note that the narration refers to them here as a trinity of dreams beneath the moon. And I want to point out that Thessaly is a witch, Hazel is a mother, and Foxglove is quite possibly a heterosexual virgin. So it's a Hecate sighting. Exactly. Interesting. I didn't know that Foxglove was meant to be a heterosexual virgin. Like she hasn't had heterosexual. This may be me. This may be me being inappropriate here. Yeah, no, I think it's. I think it's definitely think, what's written in the book. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's intended that way. And uh, Morpheus does refer to her as a maiden a little later on. He does. You know, that's right. That is true. Okay, fair enough. In classical definitions of virginity. Right. Not in the sense that she's never had sexual content, but in the sense that there's been no 
penetrative intercourse, to put it as scientifically as I can. <laughs> so they arrive at the land, and Thessaly can tell that they're in an old dream by how solid it is. And again, we reiterate, this is where Barbie comes to dream, but she didn't create it. It's much older than she is. And also very old is Thessaly herself. How do you know all this stuff, Thessaly? I'm older than I look, Foxglove. You pick stuff up as you go along, you know? Yeah? How old are you? I'm really pretty old. Let's leave it there, huh? So I think the implication here throughout this last couple issues of the story arc is that Thessaly goes all the way back to ancient Greece. That's, yeah, I think that's fair. That's how old she is. Right. The others want to go look for Barbie, but Thessaly wants to go straight for the cuckoo. I'm sure we'll run into Barbie along the way. That's how these things usually work. But I'm looking for the cuckoo. It needs to be taught a lesson. How many of these things has she done? <laughs> God only knows in the thousands Fucking of years she's been alive. crazy adventures and shit. Well, I like that they've transported themselves into a story and she's using story logic to justify her argument. Exactly. Yeah, she's like, yeah, fair. we'll probably bump into her because that's sort of what the story demands. And, and, and Thessaly did get a limited series later, right? Did she? That may be true. I can't back you up on that one. <laughs> if she did, I, I haven't read it, but that's cool. I believe it exists. All right. need to look into that. Anyway, Thessaly's got her eyes on the prize. And again, she doesn't know the way to the cuckoo, but she points out that this is a dream world. It needs to bring us together. And that's when they find Wilkinson. Now, just like, well, not just like George. Fortunately. But much like she did with George, Thessaly can talk to the dead Wilkinson to get some answers. Yeah, she has a very different right here as she cuts her finger and drips a little blood into a circle of stones. And we see reflected in this pool, Wilkinson's face. He's a bit cantankerous about having been summoned from the dead to Nobody uh, answer Nobody seems their to questions. enjoy that. Nobody likes it. Maybe, I mean, maybe it is just really uncomfortable. It's crossing a line. It is. It is. He's like, this is messed up. So Thessaly asks him what his name is. He says, I don't need to tell you that. I don't need to tell you anything. I'm dead. Just leave me alone. Thessaly insists, your name. And he says, Wilkinson. Where's the cuckoo, Wilkinson? She's down there. That's where her palace is in the city. Um, excuse me, Mr. Wilkinson. Do you know where Barbie is? Barbie? I failed her. I failed her. I did everything I could. Where is she? The cuckoo took her. Tell her. Tell her, Wilkinson said sorry. Now leave me be. Thessaly dismisses him. So that's basically just a page of them playing catch-up, although done in a reasonably visually interesting and character-dynamic way. Yeah. So as they go on to catch up with Barbie and the cuckoo, Hazel and Foxglove finally have a fight about Hazel's pregnancy. This right. fight is a little overdue, but yeah, it finally came out. Right, and this is inspired by Thessaly beginning to explain that cuckoos lay their eggs in other birds' nests. Foxglove asks, you are pregnant, aren't you? Hazel says, well, I haven't done a test or anything. I mean, I didn't get around to it yet. Not that I'm worried about killing rabbits, because you don't have to do that anymore. Hazel... Shut the hell up! Sorry. Shithead. Fuxcliff says if they ever get home, she's gonna scream at Hazel, throw things, call her names. Hazel didn't even know she knew. And she calls her dumb a whole bunch of times. Dumb and selfish and deceitful and secretive. And and dumb! And then we just get a panel of Hazel with tears streaming down her face. Oh, shit, Foxglove Glove says. But then, a moment later, do you know how much a baby's gonna cost us? 
Hazel gives a questioning sniff. So there's still a going concern, even though Hazel got pregnant by somebody else. Yep. Apparently, yeah, it's wants kind, to keep it. It's kind of a weird forgiveness that she extends here, saying like, ah, this baby thing, I didn't sign up for it, but I guess I'm going to do it. And then Hazel says, Fox, I do love you. Damn straight you do, jerk. Now we are back in New York City with what looks like a very different artist. Yeah, Wanda's tank top got a lot sexier. I noticed. <laughs> wow, you're not wrong. That's like a completely different shirt. <laughs> Entirely different for a completely shows, different purpose. Right? Shows like a little bit more midriff. The breasts are definitely more prominent. So, uh, And also, this artist is drawing the bulge. Don't draw the bulge. <laughs> I mean, logically, we know it's there, but we've already been told that it's there, so... Now, Wanda's noticing that it's a seriously windy night. This is the kind of night that needs a roaring log fire, a leopard skin rug, a bottle of fine brandy, and, hmm, I don't know, Rutger Hauer, maybe. Rutger Hauer? <laughs> you know? Who has fantasies about <laughs> Rutger Hauer? Eric, everybody's got their own type, and Wanda's type is Rutger Hauer. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Was Rutger Hauer ever a young man? <laughs> I think so. It's just born middle-aged. Oh, man. And the third Velvet Underground LP in the background. Instead, I've got a severed face and Sleeping Beauty for company. George points out that Barbara may be having some difficulties because the porpentine on her chest is flickering. Wanda asks Jesus, so what does that mean? Maybe the batteries are dead. Maybe the batteries are running out, but George does not know. So outside, there's a big crash, and Wanda goes to the window to see that the dog hater is stuck under some... Rogue trash cans. Right. This is the homeless woman that they ran into on the subway who said, I don't like dogs. I just don't like dogs. Right. So Wanda rushes out to help, throws a coat on over her suddenly sexy underwear. Yes, very suddenly. <laughs> and she manages to get the trash can off of the dog-hating lady and get her into the building, although this woman's leg was hurt in the crash. Together they tackle the stairs up to George's apartment. I'd like to use George's shower, but there's a corpse in the bathtub with its face cut off. I don't believe I just said that. Now, I kind of like this because Wanda is kind of doing a reversal on this lady. When they met earlier on the subway in issue 30, Wanda just kind of told her to drop dead and didn't want to give her any money. And now she's being much more compassionate. Yeah, exactly. She even says, this is a city of crazies, you know that? In sort of a commiserative way with this old woman when she had said pretty much exactly the same thing about her the first time they met. Right, she's now folding her into the non-crazies, rather than into the crazies. So back in the land, the cuckoo is dragging an unconscious Barbie to the Isle of Thorns. Fucking lazy black guard, where are those guys? I know, <laughs> they just all they She all told them to on. do it! They're gone now! There's like not a single black guard in sight! Her fucking <laughs> hypnotism wore off. Yeah, they're just like, hey, we, we are fucking badass dudes! What are we doing here? Big ass hats! <laughs> We don't need to be listening to no little kid. So yeah, now it's just Luz and the Cuckoo and Barbie. Yeah, and the Cuckoo is chatting with Luz. It's time for me to fly the nest. Everyone has to grow up sometime. Subtext rapidly becoming text as she describes leaving this childhood dream world in those terms. Right. And in the course of this dialogue, we also learned that Luz was genuinely a rebel until she had a run-in with the Cuckoo and her hypnotic voice. So presumably it wasn't, you know... Loses fault or any problem with loses morals that you know, I was building so many conspiracy theories in my head 
about Luz being, she was a bad guy agent all along. She was the one who replaced the Polaroids with playing cards and all this crazy shit that I had. And then it ends up just being like the most basic explanation, which is the cuckoo hypnotized Luz like she hypnotized Barbie. Okay, so when they had the moment earlier where Wilkinson was singing and Luz says, do you want everybody to find us? I had made a note of that in my notes because I remembered Wilkinson being the traitor. Oh. I was like, this is foreshadowing that Wilkinson's the bad guy. Sean Wilkinson would never betray anybody. You malign Wilkinson unfairly. He's sir. a good and honest reporter. <laughs> <laughs> you remember the first episode, I also maligned Wilkinson. You did? Why do you hate him? He's just a rat who wants to dress like McGruff the crime dog. It's That's all these all rats. He He's a real Clint Clark type. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So. The cuckoo is dragging Barbie across this tiny causeway to this tiny little island. And in the center of the island is a big stone covered in runes. Or so you would think. It's actually Japanese and it says dreaming. Fuck yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> This is why we brought you I know, right? That's what I'm here for, guys. So, dreaming. However, you can kind of tell. It's phonetic? Yeah, it's it's katakana, which is the alphabet they use to write foreign words. So, do, ri, ming. But you can kind of tell that whoever wrote it wasn't super familiar with katakana and were just copying it as best they could because the do is, like, a little bit sideways. and But, you know, it's still cool. So, so I guess that means that Barbie's grandfather spoke Japanese. Clearly. <laughs> maybe. Well, you know, maybe he was in the war? I don't know. Maybe he picked something up. The Japanese word for dreaming. Maybe he was like one of those guys who was stationed on air bases, you know. Oh, that's entirely possible too. Or he was just a weeaboo. We, we will never. <laughs> <laughs> I based you on my grandfather. He was such a weeaboo. <laughs> the hieromancer apparently was the only person who understood what the hierogram is and what it's for, implying here that they did kill him. Yeah, we get confirmation from the cuckoo that Barbie probably did indeed base him on her grandfather. It's not important what the land is, the cuckoo says. Only how to leave it. Right. As they said she was in the first issue, she is trying to end this world so that she can escape from it into other people's heads. Yeah, she's apparently aware this is a dream, and she says there are real worlds out there, too. That's where she wants to be. But she's trapped here until this world ends. Now, about this time, Thessaly, Hazel, and Foxglove show up. Now the cuckoo runs up to them playing the wounded gazelle gambit. Mm. The cuckoo's got Princess Barbie pointing back towards the person who is suddenly wishing she wasn't a bird. (laughs) Poor Luz. So Thessaly, ever the woman on the mission, marches straight toward Luz, says, so you're the cuckoo then? Uh, yes. And so Thessaly picks up Luz and wrings her neck. Snap. Thessaly, why did you do that? Just kill her like that. That's Hazel. Yep. Thessaly says she needed to be taught a lesson. But you just killed her. Yes. That was the lesson. You don't get a second chance. That's Thessaly justice right there, I guess. Anyway, if she was the kind of thing I think she was, you don't want to talk to them or let them talk to you. Just a few seconds is all they need. Indeed. Yeah, right idea, wrong target. The cuckoo tells Thessaly that she's very clever and that that's all the killing she needs to do. And Thessaly agrees. The cuckoo seems to recognize here that Thessaly is something other than a person. Right, so she says, uh, you don't fit. Witches! No matter, you people are so wonderful, so joyous and strange. You have secret worlds inside you. Is it that way with all of you? I think you three should sit down now and not make any more noise. 
which they do because it's the cuckoo and you do what the cuckoo tells you. Now it's moonrise, so the cuckoo wakes Barbie. The hierogram and the porpentine were left behind ages ago, the cuckoo explains. Possibly by the land's creator, you guys think? I think that's entirely possible, yep. yep. Gotta be. The destruction of either of them signals the death of the land. The destruction of both ensures it. And then I get to leave the nest. And then I get to fly. Pretty clear what she wants Barbie to do at this point. Back in the real world, this is bad stuff. Hoodoo stuff. You do this stuff? No. That's good. <laughs> and that's about all this homeless woman has to say about the dead person's face nailed to the wall. Right, she's so nonchalant about the weird shit going on in this yep. apartment. Just, you're not doing bad witchcraft, right? Okay. Alright, we're good then. No problem. <laughs> Wanda points out that the face on the wall is George and he talks, but the homeless woman says, I don't talk to no dead people. Bad luck. Now, at this point, Wanda realizes that this is the I Don't Like Dogs lady that they've met before, and she gives her name as Maisie Hill. They have a very good little bonding moment where Wanda explains that she is a trans woman. Wanda says, I was born a guy and now I'm a gal. I'm not sure that that's how most trans women would explain it, but maybe she's just trying to make it easy for Maisie to understand. Right. But Um, Maisie actually has experience in this area. It turns out that she had a grandson who was trans, and her family took it a lot better than Wanda's did. Yeah. His ma used to say he was the daughter she'd never had. I wish my mom had said that. She said I was the spawn of the devil. That's dumb. Just because someone's different, don't make them bad. Unfortunately, it turns out her grandson was murdered five years ago. Everyone told him not to go with strangers. There never was any telling that boy anything. But you know, at least somebody's not being a dick to Wanda, so that's nice. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Now it's time for some really epic page layouts. On the left side of this double page, we have a handful of panels against a bright blue sort of sky background. And on the right... Crazy shit are happening. Yes. So Barbie, on the command of the cuckoo, lifts the porpentine in her left fist and then dashes it against the hierogram, shattering it and releasing a ton of light and what looks like smoke. Yeah, there's this massive burst of white light. There are streams of stars pouring out of the hierogram. It's awesome. And I want to point out this too. The three women in the background just sitting calmly looking the opposite way. From oh the yeah, amazing they don't even notice. Show. Right. And then the cuckoo starts gloating. I'm the cleverest and the prettiest, and one day I'll be the biggest and the brightest, and I'll fly into little girls' minds and lay eggs of my own there. I won! I beat all of you! Back in New York, the porpentine on Barbie's chest shines and then disappears. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, Wanda doesn't know what that means, but she knows it can't be good. The radio cuts back in as massive winds and tides buffet the Big Apple. Yeah, the... DJ Outro's Satellite of Love by Lou Reed. (laughs) This story arc has all my favorite records in it. (laughs) And she's apologizing to the guy who called in to say that the hurricane was coming, because now it looks like the hurricane is coming. I don't know why, it's unprecedented, but yep, it is looping back around to hit New York. And they play that silly Q-tip ad again. (laughs) Yes. Back in the land, the stars begin to fall and Morpheus appears. Oh, this is really cool. We see the stars falling en masse, and then we see one bright star against a black backdrop pull back to reveal it's the Eye of Morpheus. Who states, The time has come, then. I am here by the terms of the compact. Now, the cuckoo is taken by surprise for possibly the first time in the issue. She does not recognize Morpheus. Did you not call me, young lady? I was your land's creator. 
But it turns out the one he's looking for is not the cuckoo. She's not the one who summoned him. Barbie is. And Morpheus, by sort of placing his finger under her chin and lifting her head, seems to lift the spell of the cuckoo. And Barbie immediately notices that Fox, Hazel, and Thessaly are there. But they cannot answer her because they are still under the cuckoo's spell. And he breaks that spell as well. He really doesn't like petty enchantments in his realm. Right. Oh, and at this point we find out that he is Murphy. Morpheus, Murphy. I feel like I should have either remembered that or it should have been more obvious. But when we got to that part, I was like, oh! <laughs> yeah, Thessaly is like, I would have figured that out. And I was like, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have. have. <laughs> Definitely smarter than me, Thessaly. Now, Morpheus asks them all to be quiet while he uncreates the land. And this happens more or less in silence with Barbara narrating. It's a very, very gentle sort of unmaking, right? That's like destruction and just sort of gently disassembling it. And some amazing art on these couple of pages. All the people of the land come walking down this tiny causeway. Hundreds, maybe thousands of them. The living and the dead, the good and the evil. First, the ones created by Barbie. And then ones from past occupants of the land as well. Barbie says, I saw Wilkinson and Pranato walking together. They waved when they saw me. One by one, they all walk into Morpheus's cloak and vanish as they do. Barbie says, Did he become huge? Or did they become tiny as they reached him? Did such concepts even apply? And the last is a woman in white with long dark hair and a scar on her right cheek. Eleonora. Right. I am here, Eleonora, by the terms of the compact. Eleonora said, I see. And what now? Now it ends. How long has it been? A long time, old love. Your land has been home to many since your day. So this is probably the original person who dreamed here, right? I think so. Oh, definitely. And her outfit seems to put her, you know, at least a couple centuries back. Maybe at least one, I guess I should say, since this was released in 1989, but... <laughs> <laughs> and it seems like she and Morpheus maybe used to be a thing, too. Possibly. He does call her old love. When she's gone, Morpheus picks up the entire land in one hand. And even though it's tiny, it's all there. Barbie can see every detail. And then, gently, crumbles to dust in his hand, and it blows away. A glittering, multicolored sand that fell away into the chilly wind at the end of the world. Now they're all standing on... How would you describe that? A rock? <laughs> standing on a rock under a gray sky. Yeah, it's just all gray around them except for this little spit of rock or land or whatever it is. Barbie goes up to Morpheus. Um, are you okay? Endings are mixed blessings, Princess Barbara. But yes, I am okay. I thank you for asking. There, half the compact is discharged. Now, I wonder if you three know the trouble you've caused. He uh, says, referring oh. to Foxglove, Hazel, and Thessaly. Right. He recognizes Thessaly and she tries to pretend they've never met. <laughs> Do I know you? I don't believe so. Now, Thessaly demands the right to kill the cuckoo, but Morpheus says no. You demand... Thessalian, the moon has tumbled into the sea in this place. It cannot take you or your followers back to the waking world. You are a trespasser, here without my consent. I am very displeased. But, Morpheus says, they are not the only ones in trouble. And we cut back to New York. Oh, dear. Uh, Miss Wanda? Hi, George. You're talking again, then. So George starts very ineffectually trying to tell them that it's a very intense storm in a very old building. 
And George is, remember, a native of the land, and he can feel that the land is gone now. And then on the last page of this issue, we get some pretty nice art here of the building just collapsing. I mean, almost just like exploding inward, it looks like. And there is rubble falling on Wanda, Maisie, and Barbara alike, although it should be noted that Maisie is kind of falling on top of Barbie. Yeah, and the building almost dissolves into abstract art, this mess of bricks and fire escapes falling into a pile. It's not a safe place. It's nope. very effective. I mean, not the building as a building. <laughs> the building is a very ineffective building. But this page is, this page is very It's good. Effective. Do you want to point out that that was a extra long issue? Oh, oh, yes. So by my count, that was 39 pages long, which means we got 15 extra pages over the normal 24. And most of that extra time was devoted just to doing the end of the land in great detail, but I think it was well spent. Yeah, I think yeah, it was very effective, and I loved it. I loved the way that he approached it. But now we've got an entire issue to go, and the land has been destroyed, so... This is Sandman number 37. I woke up and one of us was crying. I think Every Day I Write the Book is my favorite Elvis Costello song, but I Want You is probably the best Elvis Costello song. Like, objectively, you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. The cover shows, I'm thinking it's the face of Morpheus, but looking at the hair on the top, I'm wondering if that's, like, blurred into Wanda's face? Possibly. I thought that it was, like, Morpheus's face on top and, like, a paper face on the bottom. That's how I interpreted it. I mean, I definitely see a bird up here. Oh, yeah. It's Matthew! There we go, we've solved it. So we open on a milieu that we really haven't seen before in this story. This is a public bathroom. Somewhere, we will find out where eventually. And Barbie is narrating that she's traveled 1,600 miles in three days. She's wearing a black dress and has her hair done up and she's putting on her makeup in the bathroom mirror. Yep, she says, I can't believe this is happening. Apply makeup, breathe deeply, try not to remember. And she flashes back to herself, Morpheus, Thessaly, Foxglove, and Hazel, and the Cuckoo, all standing on a little island of land that is all that's left of the land. This is classic Morpheus. Mr. Murphy, are you going to do anything about the Cuckoo? Do anything? Saving only your boon, I have done all I came here to do, Barbara. Do anything? When do I ever do anything? <laughs> he says what that... are you, new? <laughs> <laughs> well, we got like one or two more, like, do anything. Like, we, got, we got a couple more of those in this yeah, issue to go. We do, that's true. Yeah, well, once again, reminding us that Morpheus has duties to perform, but he is not a hero. This is actually the first Sandman story that PK read. And this was, like, his favorite moment. It was just, like, anytime somebody says, are you going to do anything? And Morpheus says, do anything? <laughs> do anything? Yeah. Right. Like, Why should he? What would you have me do? I make dreams and shit. <laughs> Barbie says the cuckoo has to be stopped, that she's dangerous and evil. Morpheus agrees that she's dangerous, but says she only acts according to her nature. And adds that it's Barbie's fault the cuckoo was trapped here, unable to leave the scary when it was time to fly. And then he says something really interesting that doesn't really get explained in this issue. What's that? It's Barbie's fault and also Rose Walker's. Yes! Yeah, I noticed that. 
Right, Barbie asked Rose what she got to do with this. And then Barbie and Foxglove both realize that they know Rose Walker. Yeah, small right. world. That little coincidence that we noticed before that Rose was Judy's best friend and Judy is Thessal- Foxglove's ex. Right. Yeah, I almost it just said Thessaly's ex, which is probably not true. Probably not. Probably You can't not. say for sure, but she's, probably not. She's been around a lot of years. Yeah, yeah. I think she's just past all that now. <laughs> so if I had to guess, I mean, Rose was the dream vortex, and that's what caused the trauma that left Barbie unable to dream. Okay. That's what dragged these events out from where they may have been two or three years ago. That may be how it's her fault. That's a good guess. Yeah, but it does seem like a dreamstone is mixed up in all this, and we still don't know how an extra dreamstone got to a random corner of the dreaming. Maybe something to do with his compact with Eleonora? Perhaps. I like how it doesn't, like, tell you definitively, though. Right, exactly. The nature of whatever deal he had with Eleonora is just something we have to speculate about. She was obviously important enough that this world was created for her and that there's a dreamstone there, but that's all we know. Now, Hazel asks if Morpheus is going to do anything with them, given that they're trespassers and all. And again, Morpheus, he doesn't know what that is, that do something. <laughs> do? What is this word, do? Now, Thessaly points out inaction is sometimes an action, and Morpheus agrees with her interpretation. Well, he would. Of course. As I said, you are trespassers. You came here without my cognizance, nor with my consent. You must pay the price for that. Referring to the floating bit of sand in the void that they're standing on, he says, Hmm, I will leave it here for you. It would be unfair to remove it. Right, Foxglove says, So you'll just leave us here? Is that what you're saying? Can you give me any reason not to? But, but we only came here because we thought Barbie was in trouble. So you have said. Morpheus reminds Barbie that because of his compact with Alianora, he owes her, Barbie, a boon as the one who ended the land. So Barbie's faced with a choice now. One option she could take would be to have Morpheus kill the cuckoo, which seems quite appealing to her. But then again, she could bring back Wilkinson and Martin Tenbones and and all of her friends and restore the land to the way it used to be. Well? I don't know. Let me think. There's an effective panel here of Barbie uh, lost in thought. The cuckoo is looking up at her as Morpheus looms over the cuckoo's back. Thessaly says, kill the cuckoo and she'll find them a way home. Barbie tells Thessaly to shut it. Which is kind of nice. I mean, Thessaly's like kind of cool, but like really she has had she's a also, shot at like come and do her for a while. She's been a pretty big jerk for she a while. She has. Yes, she has. The so, ice that lose like a punk. She seriously <laughs> did. And she got, even though she's like supposed to be this like thousands of year old witch or whatever, like she got hypnotized super easily it's by the true, cuckoo. It's true. So. So Barbie says, I'll take the Dorothy option. I want to send us all home. Me and Hazel and Foxglove and Thessaly. I want us back safe and sound. Very well. The cuckoo says, does that mean I can fly? Yes. Thank you, she says to Barbie. Barbie says, go away. And the cuckoo does go away. She walks out onto this sort of promontory that's I think that was the causeway. The causeway. There right, we go. Right, this is the that's, Isle of yep. Thorns just floating in So she walks out onto the causeway, and as she is running to the end of it, she turns into this, this sort of prismatic, sort of luminescent colored bird and flies off into the this sky. sort of beautiful rainbow eagle here. Right. Yeah, this is a pretty cool transformation sequence. Even Barbie says wow, and she is no fan of the cuckoos. Thessaly shakes her fist and says, 
back in the bus station bathroom, Barbie remembers these events, though she remembers them as a persistent dream. Uh, a dream she can't forget. And we see that she has a makeup pencil and she is putting a veil on in the form of cross lines drawn on her face. Oh my god, that would take some skill. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty impressed, although it sounds like she's been at this whole face painting thing for a while. Back in the dreaming, Morpheus has words for each of the women before he sends them off. He says he'll see Barbie again, though she won't see him. He refers to Foxglove and Hazel as little maiden, little mother. Yeah, he says that they're really lucky and advises them to choose their traveling companions better. And you. You have been foolish and unconsidered in your actions, he says, addressing Thessaly. You will hardly survive another century if you continue in this manner of behavior, lady. I don't remember asking your advice, Dream King. It was freely given and well meant. Is that a word-for-word quote from the exchange between Orpheus and the Hippogriff? In in the Sandman special? Good call. It's very, very wow. close. Yeah. Nice memory. Back in the public bathroom, Barbie decides that she looks as good as possible under the circumstances. Not that Wanda will care, of course. Yeah, I don't think she's worried about how she looks. It's just that she probably still smells. Stinks True. like a bus. What are you gonna do? And I think this is the first part where we are explicitly told that she's meeting Wanda. Or right. heading for Wanda in some way. I want to point out, too, that on these two pages... The scenes in the dreaming are set into panels, which are themselves against the background of the bus stop. Kind of a cool visual clue. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is cool. So they're sitting on this rock, and they sit and they wait for a long time, waiting to wake up. They ask Thessaly again how old she is, and she says, I was born in the day of greatest darkness in the year the bear totem was shattered. Uh... That was one of our best bear totems. <laughs> yeah! No, no wonder it was the day of greatest darkness. It took us ages to make that thing. I also like the fact that Thessaly takes the opportunity to say that Morpheus isn't even that hot. I love like, this He's not bit. even that good I love this. He comes on like he's so cool. Who does he think he's fooling? Well, he's not fooling me. Oh, no. And it isn't even as if he's good looking. He's too thin for a start. <laughs> and then, as they sit there... The dream sort of starts to dissolve. They start to wake up and everything's feeling further and further away and it's getting colder. Barbie says she tries to stay in the dream where it's warm, but ultimately she can't. And then I, and then I woke, and then I woke up. Now that is pretty much exactly the same thing that Rose narrated when she woke up from her encounter with Morpheus at the end of A Doll's House. Interesting. True that. Back in the real world, there are gross dudes. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, she walks past these two dudes catcalling as she walks out of what turns out to have been the bathroom in a diner. Hee hee hee. Hoo hoo hoo. This guy's doing the job of the hot laugh. <laughs> Barbie just says, assholes. Well, she thinks it. In her think bubble. Okay, so she meets this old lady. This is Wanda's Aunt Dora. This is the one who would actually still talk to Wanda, right? Thought Wanda was a sinner, but would actually still talk to her? Is that what she said? She had one aunt that still talked to her. I think so, yeah. Though she insists on misgendering her. Misgendering and dead naming all the way, but... Right, she refers to Wanda as Alvin. She asks, how close were you? Barbie says, pretty close. She lived in the room next door to me. We'd talk a lot, go shopping, you know. Just hang out. Girl talk. I like that 
Barbie kind of subtly reinforces Wanda was a girl right, there. Right, exactly. That's like her way of digging. I think we've seen over and over that Barbie is not a super confrontational person. So this is probably about as confrontational as she can get. Yeah, but she does have her arms crossed here and kind of a defensive look on her face. Almost like a come at me. Yeah, It was exactly. girl talk. It's girl talk. You know, that thing that girls do. So this is lovely posture from Sean McManus here. Yeah. Um, Aunt Dora says, listen, girl, when you meet Ezekiel and Joan Allen, well, they aren't broad-minded like me. You make sure that you talk about their son. They've been hurt enough by all this. You don't want to make things any harder for them. You understand what I'm saying? Which is just, like, like, shut up. (laughs) Shut up. Hard on them. Like, oh, whatever. How hard were they on Wanda when Wanda was, you know, still living with them, so. Right. Growing up and everything. Now Barbie recalls waking up in the ruined building, having slept through the whole hurricane. There's an interesting talking past each other moment here, as Dora guesses correctly, though for the wrong reason, that Barbie had been having bad dreams. Well, and it sort of provides Barbie with an alternate explanation for that crazy night and those crazy dreams, that she doesn't need to necessarily believe that anything supernatural happened. Right, much like Rose at the end of A Doll's House, she can file it away as something weird that happened, but not something that's going to affect her life every day. What saved Barbie's life, we learn, is that Maisie either fell or deliberately dove on top of her. And so Maisie got crushed by the falling building, and Barbie was safe underneath her. Being carried away on a stretcher, Barbie saw Wanda's body in a transparent body bag, and she freaked out, tried to get her out of the bag so she didn't suffocate. Dora reaches out here to comfort Wanda as she's telling the story. It's okay, honey. It's okay. Oh, this is gross. I made a note of this. So Barbie says that when she woke up and she saw all this rubble, she she thinks she remembers seeing or imagining this huge bright red slug. Like, I don't know, like some kind of tongue slithering through the rubble. So George is still walking the earth. At least his tongue is. Which is slithering the earth. Which is probably not the best thing for George. (laughs) No, he probably, probably better for him if he had just died. But no, he's a tongue now, so that's cool. Yeah. And I want to point out here as Dora cuts her pie that the cut in this slice of pie is like exactly the slash in Wilkinson's throat. Yes, I noticed that too. Yep. It's a very mm, violent looking cut in this pie. So everyone who was in the building died except for the people who were in the dreaming at that time. Or in the land, if you rather. Right, because Barbie specified safe and sound. And uh, we can presume that they were. So they get ready to go, and they are going to Wanda's funeral. Dora expresses some old-fashioned-y wrong opinions. (laughs) Um, God gives you a body, it's your duty to do well by it. He makes you a boy, you dress in blue. He makes you a girl, you dress in pink. You mustn't go trying to change things. Which is apparently Aunt Dora's idea of being broad-minded. Although when we do meet Wanda's parents, Ezekiel and Joan Ellen, you do realize that they they are objectively worse. They're considerably worse. (laughs) Yes, they are well awful. Dora mentions that they had an open coffin at the visitation. They cut his hair and put him in a suit and everything. Oh yeah, and Barbie says, but Wanda was always so proud of her hair. So, not a wig. That was my bad. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, well, yeah, that's great. It was quite a mane of red hair, and then it all got chopped off. Wanda would have hastened to correct you. 
this is something that I've noticed at funerals just generally is that once you're at that stage it just sort of becomes about like the survivors and how they want to remember the person not necessarily how the person would have wanted to be remembered and that's certainly the case at this funeral very much so not always I hope as pronounced an injustice as oh, it is oh god here. yeah no this is really bad so they're driving to the funeral Dora asks what Barbie's doing now as well as the others in the apartment Barbie doesn't know. She doesn't have a job or a home, just occasional alimony checks from Ken. Hazel and Foxglove moved in with Hazel's mom. They're a chef and a writer, so they can work anywhere. Vesely's gone, but she's a survivor. For at least another century or so. Yeah, at least another century. (laughs) Unless she shapes up. (laughs) They get to the funeral, and Dora introduces Barbie to Wanda's parents. And the very first thing that Wanda's mother says is, The hurricane! It was God's judgment on a city of sinners. Mrs. Mann sucks. I know. Nice to meet you, too, Mrs. Mann. So oh. that's charming. Didn't and when mention... hurricanes hit, you know, places down south. Yeah, no. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> we didn't uh, mention the sort of black cosmic joke that Wanda's birth last name is Mann. Man, Yeah, that is a cosmic joke. Yeah, her father is relatively chill here he at least thanks barbie for coming but her mom has no chill at all none at all in fact right after barbie leaves to go stand in the back on aunt dora's recommendation wanda's mother starts saying i don't want that girl coming back to the house for coffee and cakes afterwards what with the people we've got coming over this town's going to remember alvin as the god-bearing child that he should have been I love that she's looking directly away from the two people that she's talking to. Oh, When people command in that way, that's the way that they do it. Yeah, absolutely. Dora points out that that is shitty hospitality and not what the South is all about. So even the transphobic aunt thinks you're being a dick, Joan Allen. So time to reflect on your life. Yeah. During the service, Barbie realizes she's already forgetting what Wanda looked like. Is identity that fragile? The thought scares me. After the funeral, the family leaves, and Barbie takes a moment with Wanda for herself. Yeah, this part is really... Well, first of all, the tombstone for Wanda has, of course, like, her dead name on it. So we have Alvin Robert Caleb Mann. But then the quote underneath, For they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. Why don't you just write, She deserved this, and be done with it? Like, that is terrible. Right, and for someone killed by wind, no less. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it seems as if Wanda's mother tried to make this as much of a fuck you to her as she possibly could. Yeah, essentially. But it is, you know, yeah. It is sweet, though, that we get this extended conversation that Barbie has with Wanda saying goodbye. She says that on the way here, she noticed all of the beautiful place names. Cloverdale, Florissant, Mulberry Grove, Boonville, Selena, Aurora, and Goodland. They sound like the names of Magic Kingdoms, don't they? I think to those of us who grew up, like, in the suburbs of the Midwest, they don't sound all that special. But maybe if you grew up in the big city. Well, we know she grew up in a little house in Florida. On the she beach. did. Well, maybe they all had, like, I don't know, like, Spanish-inspired names since it was Florida. I don't know. She's maybe getting back a little bit of her overactive imagination, though, so that's yeah, nice. Yeah, that's nice. Has it completely left her? She wishes Wanda was here. For a start, she could tell her what the hell happened and who the woman who saved her was. Yeah, why was she in George's room? Why was he in the bath? Why are Fox and Hazel avoiding her? And who's the old lady who saved her life? Barbie remarks that she went to the woman's funeral and was just about the only person there. Barbie has an idea that she wants to run past Wanda. Okay, here goes. Barbie's idea. 
It's like that people, well, everybody has a secret world inside of them. I mean, everybody. All of the people in the whole world, no matter how dull and boring they are on the outside, inside them they've all got unimaginable, magnificent, wonderful, stupid, amazing worlds. Not just one world, hundreds of them. Thousands, maybe. Isn't that a weird thought? Sort of echoing something that Cuckoo said earlier, which was that everybody has a secret world inside of them. Yeah, and she's going to wreck them all. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, she's working on it, presumably. <laughs> well, presumably she only had to destroy the land because of the strangeness that kept it together. Maybe so. Hopefully she doesn't have to kill everybody. <laughs> Barbie remarks that she has brought Wanda a present. Yeah, it's a Hyperman comic book. And she flashes back to the comic book store where she bought it in a sequence that is not particularly great press for comic book <laughs> Is this what they were like in 1989? Because I have never felt that way in a comic book store. Must have been more of a boys club back then. But the cashier makes a very lewd comment about uh, Barbie's breasts. Yeah, he was really amused, she says, that she was female and asking for a comic. Right. I remember seeing, just in October of last year, a tweet from Neil Gaiman saying that for every person who told me it was an unfair parody, I met five who told me it was their local store. <laughs> I can believe that. Barbie says, I wanted you to be there so badly. You would have said something to him that would have blistered his ears and curled his toes and made him feel like he was six inches high. I just blushed and left, mad on the inside. Presumably she's talking about the comic shop owner, not Neil Gaiman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Left ambiguous on purpose, maybe. And she throws this comic book into the hole to be buried with the casket, and we understand this to be the first appearance of Weirdo World. Right. And then she takes another thing out of her bag, and it is lipstick. Tacky Flamingo. Tacky Flamingo, which was Wanda's favorite color. In lipstick, she crosses out Alvin on the headstone and writes above it, Wanda. Hey, no problem. Least I could do. Is very nice. Barbie gets in the car and Dora drives her to the bus station, asking what she'll do now. Barbie says she'll do what kids say when they're asked. Where am I going? Out. What am I going to do? Nothing. Barbie then starts making things a little weird. Talking about how she <laughs> used to be a princess and had a cuckoo in her head. And Aunt Dora says, well, isn't that nice? Well, I like to... To see that Barbie has maybe made some kind of peace with her inner child. Absolutely. But, uh, she was sort of having trouble adjusting to the idea that she had to put out an adult impression at the beginning of the story right. arc. And now she's uh, she's accepted the land and her overactive imagination a little bit. It's part of her. Yeah. And she remembers a dream that she had on the bus. A sort of goodbye to Wanda. Right. So she dreams of Wanda. She says, only she's perfect. She reminds me of Glinda in the Oz movie, something I'm sure she'd get a huge kick out of hearing. And when I say perfect, I mean perfect. Drop-dead gorgeous. There's nothing camp about her, nothing artificial. And she looks happy. Yeah, so I was kind of of two minds about this. Right. On the one hand, it's like, it's like saying that imagining Wanda as like a beautiful woman is imagining her as something different than what she was. Right. Which... I don't love. But a generous reading of it would be to say that she's kind of seeing Wanda, like, self-actualized. Like, fully the way that she exists in her own mind. Which, you know, no one exists in the real world 
the way that they exist in their own mind. I could see that. I could see that. I just want to say, like, if there are, are any, like, trans women listening to this, you're already perfect. Like, <laughs> you don't need to, I don't know, be gussied up in the dream world and, you know, you're fine the way you are. I just want to throw that out there. Wizard of Oz isn't even a good movie. So <laughs> <laughs> so and that's worry. a hot take. <laughs> so don't worry about it. Yeah. But I do think this is, like, trying to redeem a little bit of the transphobic shit that she had to go through, and particularly the transphobic shit from like the gods and the world at large that Wanda's spirit is decidedly female. Oh yeah, that would be true since this is Wanda after having passed. So yeah. To his credit, Neil Gaiman tweeted recently that all the, you know, like accurate portrayals of trans people in this storyline are because of good trans friends that he had at the time and all the wrong stuff is from him. Okay, (laughs) all right. That's, I'm so, glad that he said that. So he's owning his shit. Yeah, I'm glad that he said that. I mean, we have to point out once again, this was like 1989. So despite like the cringy parts, you know, he was definitely ahead of the curve in a lot of aspects. But death comes up behind Wanda. Right. In this vision, Wanda is with a woman that Barbie doesn't recognize, but we do. And they both wave goodbye. Looking very happy. The car drops Barbie off at the bus station and roars off. Barbie stands alone for a moment and then heads for a bus. She says, And if there's a moral there, I don't know what it is, save maybe that we should take our goodbyes whenever we can. And then the last panel she says, And that's all. All right. Yeah. So, that's a game of you. So do you guys do, like, final thoughts? Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. Talk it through a little bit. Would you like to drop a final thought? I mean, my final thought was just that it was one of the ones that I remembered most from my first reading of this years and years ago. Right, you're very bullish on this uh, this Yeah, (laughs) I really like this story a lot. The parts I don't like are the parts where it's kind of like, ooh, that's not exactly how we would best phrase things in 2018 when talking about transgender women, and I don't love how Wanda gets crapped on by the the moon, um, (laughs) among others. Crapped on by the moon, the Wanda man story. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Did um, Wanda change her last name as well? I don't think Do we, we ever hear her yeah, last name as Wanda. Know. Okay. We don't know. But I still think that it's a really interesting story with a lot of interesting themes on identity. It's very female-centric, which is, you know, like something that tends to be of interest to me. Because Neil Gaiman has said that he did sort of male-centric stories and female-centric stories. Like, that's how he classified them as he was writing The Sandman. And this is one of his female-centric stories, and I tend to like those. But I also know that a lot of people think this is the weakest arc and don't like it at all. So, Eric, as somebody who's never read it before, I'm curious what you think. I... I liked it. I think I think it's doing a lot of really effective stuff here. I especially like the way that it takes Barbie, a seemingly boring character who we met before, and really makes her much more interesting. And sort of, she's really the protagonist of this story arc, not Morpheus. You know, Morpheus is a dude that she encounters right. along the way. And backing up the theme very effectively there, as Barbie has to us been a secondary character to this point, and we learn everybody has worlds inside them. Right. Did I like it as much as Doll's House or Season of Mists? I don't think it quite hits that high mark for me. But it's definitely a good storyline. And I will say this is one of my favorite stories as well. All of the big story arcs are pretty good. But I certainly enjoyed this one. I think it's doing a lot of fantastic stuff. I think it's very 
layered and very epic and it does a really good job with playing with both fantasy tropes and the importance of storytelling as a device for establishing identity. Oh yeah, that's a good point. I also think Neil Gaiman had to have some, you know, gigantic cojones to drop a story like this in the middle of a series that has sort of a goth, grim aesthetic. For him to go that full high fantasy with it was, like, pretty ballsy. Yeah, that's true. So I enjoy that aspect of it as well. And it's certainly a departure as well from, like, the mystical adventures of Morpheus. It's certainly dark and scary in places, but... As you're saying, it's not purely a goth story. It's not purely a horror story. Right. It's fantastically imaginative and colorful as well. Um, I want to point this out from the foreword by Samuel R. Delaney, which really should have been an afterword. It spoils everything. (laughs) And Delaney notes in the foreword that people objected to Wanda's death as soon as the issue came out. And he argues that Gaiman is trying to problematize the sort of martyred noble minority character trope. I don't think people were saying problematize back when this was published. No, but I think that Not is so many what Delaney is arguing Gaiman was trying to do. <laughs> okay. For one, Barbie will be restricted to a nominal rebellion, which perhaps doesn't seem like much. The first rain will obliterate it, and likely no one in Kansas will ever know. Because of death, no one can win the game of I. Wanda cannot win it, Barbie cannot win it, nor will I, nor will you. Even if one wins only by a name written on a stone that will wash away with the next shower, at least that allows something to persist in memory, and thus may lead to something else. Gaiman shows us the most marginal win possible in a game of you, but it's still won by moments, however small, of real social bravery. And I want to talk about this line from Sandman number 30, August. Caesar says, We write our names in the sand, and then the waves roll in and wash them away. Oh yeah, I wrote down that line when we read it, and when we covered that episode. So it's kind of thematically appropriate. I guess, like, things are so um, impermanent. Yeah, that identity is itself ephemeral. It's something that we put forth as long as we can. But everybody's... Everybody dies. Everybody's identity eventually fades. Yeah, and even, like, people like Augustus, who leave something behind to be remembered by, it's going to be subject to interpretation and will probably not be interpreted in exactly the way that they meant it. Exactly. Mm, Right. And so I agree that it sucks that Wanda has to be kind of this sad, martyred outsider. But I do think that Gaiman is using her to tell a universal story. She is fundamentally human in that aspect. R.I.P. Wanda, when will we finally win the war against the moon? (laughs) Forget the birds, I'm going after the moon. I think there's a James Bond movie about that, too. (laughs) (laughs) What hasn't James Bond come at this point? (laughs) Remember the one where James Bond defeats Dependency on Oil? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah! Fuck. (laughs) Alright, so what do we have coming up in our next Sandman episode? Coming up in our next Sandman episode, we've got three standalone issues, ironically known as Convergences. But first, join us in two weeks for John Constantine Hellblazer's final confrontation with the Family Man in Morning of the Magician. Vertigize is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show. I handle social media. 
Joanna, where can people find you? You can find us online at www.whatslightsabersprecious.com. If you search the same on Facebook or Twitter, you'll find our social media accounts. And our email is at whatslightsabersprecious at gmail.com. If you're interested in Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, or if you have ever struggled to explain what's so great about them to a friend, then this could be the podcast for you, so give it a try. It's such a fun podcast. You guys should really listen to it. Oh, that's super sweet. You guys are a fun podcast, too. If you like our show, like Joanna does, I love um, it. you should check out our website. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. That's vertiguys.blueberry.com. B-L-U-B-R-R-Y is the funny way that you spell blueberry, only in that context. If you want to get in touch with us, and we certainly hope you do, you can reach us on Twitter, at Vertiguys. You can reach me on Twitter, at BlankCastSean. We have a Gmail, Vertiguys at gmail.com, and a Facebook page at facebook.com slash Vertiguys. If you're listening to our show on the Apple Podcasts app, or just wherever you're listening to it, find a way to interact with that technology and leave a positive rating or review behind. Spread the word about the show. Tell a friend. You know... Just get the word out there. I just want to say, like, when we sat down and started Vertigo Guys, when we started talking about Let's Talk About the Sandman, this is the arc that came to mind as, this is going to be really hard, but this is going to be awesome. And so thank you guys for being here. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Thanks, everybody. I want you. I woke up in one of was crying I want you You said young man I do believe you're dying I want you If you need a second opinion as you seem to do these days I want you B is for boobies B is for boobies <laughs> We are recording at this minute. Oh, good! Throw oh, you just started it? Just throw, I missed the beginning of the Instagram story. Throw that in, you story. guys. You know how you guys put, like, a silly thing at the end of every one? Just make it that. At just, no context, Eric going, B is for B is for me. <laughs> you repeated it. I did. I did. I had to confirm that that is, in fact, what you meant to say.